welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go deeper as well as some questions that go deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. I feel like I'm going to be a little long in my message today, so why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word. Uh, we will get started with this. This is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29, and it says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who look to you first, that our loves would be ordered in a way that you are first above all things. And in so doing that, we would live out in this world in a way that brings great glory to you, as you give great joy to us, as we bring about a countercultural way to actually look at and live this life that you have so graciously given us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are attempting to do a series of the book of Proverbs where we look at what a God-honoring culture and a God-honoring people look like. And I say attempting because sometimes when I talk about going through Proverbs, I haven't even gotten to the book of Proverbs. So I'm, I'm attempting, doing the, doing the best that I can. Sometimes I get an epic fail. Uh, what we want to do in Proverbs is look at the difference sometimes of how our culture lives and how the scriptures call us to live out our lives in certain ways. Uh, we want, it's not that we want to be against our culture. We want to be for grace and goodness and life and who God is calling us to be. We want to truly understand what wisdom means. And, and Proverbs is what is called a wisdom book. But what is wisdom? In 1 Kings chapter 3, God asks Solomon what he can give him. And Solomon and prays for this thing called wisdom. And when he asks for it, this is how he defines it. First Kings 3 verse 9. He says, Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Now, you might be thinking, hey, this guy is the king of Israel, he's got the priests, he's got the lies, he's got the Ten Commandments, you know, he's got people to remind him of this. Why is he asking for this thing, a heart to discern right from wrong? And the answer is, like kind of Eric talked about last week, it's more than simply being moral and good. Wisdom is knowing the right decision to make at the right time in the right way. Uh, in a lot of places where moral rules don't address certain things. Today, we're coming to a lot of stuff in our culture right now, and we would say some of the things in the Bible don't actually address a lot of those things. I think they do, but we look at these things and how do we approach those things? How do we live in wisdom in the midst of that? Well, this is what understanding how to live out and right from wrong in the right ways, trusting in God's wisdom teaches us to do in our lives and situations that moral rules don't necessarily apply to. And so there's a real and a true wisdom that comes into this. And the the key is understanding kind of what God is calling us into. So today what I want to do is I want to deal with this subject called anger. Uh, anger, it can be good, uh, it can be bad how we use it, but how I think we can use it correctly. For some of you, these might be hard words to really let sit down inside your life. So what I want to do is have you start by taking a big, deep breath. Hold it, let the oxygen get to your brain cells. You're going to need it, so don't fall asleep on me. Okay, let it out. Here we go. Uh, anger, if you didn't know it, can be very explosive. One of my favorite writers calls it the dynamite of the soul. And I think they say that because anger can be explosive. It can destroy or disintegrate things like an explosive. Uh, This can be in multiple ways. Uh, Studies show that when you walk around angry all the time, it actually has adverse effects on your body. Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy, and that can also be used as the word for anger, it's passion in a bad way, makes the bones rot. 
Uh, studies are now showing that anger is much worse on your body than anxiety or sorrow or really any other emotion. Uh, it can be even harder on your body than extreme physical exertions. Uh, studies are now confirming that what sets you up for heart attacks more than anything else, even heart disease, is anger. Is anger, and the Bible kind of says this: nothing rots your bones and disintegrates your body like this. But anger just doesn't disintegrate our bodies. Anger also disintegrates the communities that we are meant to live within. Uh, Proverbs fifteen verse eighteen says, "A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention." When people get angry, they start to use words like hand grenades. We're like. Mm. Right, and we and we hide behind our cover, and we sit back and throw our hand grenades out there and try and hit other people, and it starts to disintegrate all of the relationships that we're supposed to live within. Sometimes to places where they won't even ever reconcile. So it affects our bodies, it affects our relationships. But Proverbs speaks about it how it also disintegrates our wisdom the wisdom we're supposed to live in, the ability to make right and wrong choices. The very first proverb I started with, at the end of it, it says, he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Have you ever been angry and said or done something stupid? Yeah, okay. Like, No, not me, not ever. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can't believe that I would ever do something like that. I mean, you do something, you look back, and you're totally embarrassed by what you said or what you did. Proverbs would say you felt like a fool. You know why you felt like a fool? Because you are full. Exactly, exactly. But that's the point. Sometimes when we get angry, it distorts our view of things or situations or ourselves or people around us or the world, and we make stupidly destructive choices. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 19. Psychology Today actually had this whole article that was written about how we sometimes use the word mad in place of anger, and they said it's totally appropriate because madness is a psychosis, and sometimes that's what it's like when we get mad. In 2013, there's a New York Knicks player, his last name is Studemeyer, and he punches a fire extinguisher when they lost a playoff game, and he's out for the rest of the playoffs because he was mad. Uh, you ever at Christmas time end up in a store? I would say the mall, but our mall is terrible. But like a store like, you know, I don't know, Target or something. And, and there's like one toy left and someone gets it. And parents are like, oh, my kid needed that. And they just like melt down because the last one's gone. And now their whole Christmas is ruined. Which are weirdos. Give your, I mean, seriously, you got little kids. Give them just like a paper towel holder and some tape. It'd be like the best thing in the world for them. But, but you see, sometimes parents melt down because they can't get that toy they really need. This is, anger kind of does this. It distorts our view of things and we get a little, a little crazy. Because what anger does is it disintegrates our bodies, our communities, our relationships, the ability to make wise choices, uh, but it also destroys our will to some degree. The movie Bubble Boy, or not Bubble Boy, uh, Water Boy, the Abdullah Ablangada, right? He wants to run through, that, it's that kind of thing. Proverbs 19, 19. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. And if I wrote it, I would have said, and again, and again, and again. Tim Keller says that of all the emotions, anger is the one that's most like an abuse, uh, an addictive substance. Because it makes us, when we're angry, we want to be more angry and hold on to it. But it also makes us want to deny it when we're angry. We don't want to tell people around us when we're mad at them. So we say things like, I'm just type A. Or I just have to tell it like it is. And we say some crazy things to get things off our chest without feeling like we're saying that we're mad at somebody else. And when we deny our anger and the psychological issues of it, it can end up in broken relationships or broken hands or things like that. Anger be- can become addictive. In the Psychology Today article, it actually has this letter in it. And this is what it has. It says, Dear Counselor, you told the mother of a three-year-old with anger problems to let him kick the furniture to get the anger out of his system. 
Well, my younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. He's 32 years old now. He's still kicking the furniture, what's left of it. But he's also kicking his wife, the kids, and anything else that gets in his way. Last week, he kicked a television out of a second-story window. The window was closed at the time. See, Proverbs is right. The more we're angry, the more we need to be angry, the more we want to show that we're angry, we lose control. It disintegrates all of these things in our lives. Can we all agree on that? Yes? Okay, okay, good. Now that we agree, what I want to do is also show you how anger can be a very good thing. And I think how the scriptures call us to live a countercultural way with the idea of anger. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. The scriptures will say some amazingly positive things about anger because, according to the Bible, anger can be basically a good thing. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The ideal in Proverbs and the whole Bible together is not no anger. It is the idea of slow anger. I think sometimes it could even be a sin not to get angry at sin and unrighteousness and oppression around us. Wise people in a God-honoring culture are slow to anger. How does our culture deal with anger today? We're very fast. We react. Did you see what so-and-so posted on Twitter? Did you see this? Did you see this Facebook? Did you see? We're, we're ready to react to everything around us. But wise people in a God-honoring culture are slow to anger. That's the ideal. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, you can be angry, but don't sin in that anger. John Chrysostom, who was an early church father, summarized the biblical understanding of anger like this. He says, he that is angry without cause sins, but he was not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. Now, why, why is anger this way? He went slow to anger. Well, it's because that's how God is. God is slow to anger. There's this great scene in Exodus 34, and Moses is up on this mountain. He's been given the Ten Commandments. He's talking to God. Things like, Moses, he gets all worked up. Moses gets worked up a lot. And he's like, oh, God, show me your glory. And God's like, well, I, I can't because it scorch you where you stand. So what I'll do is I'll show you the place where I just was. And he kind of takes Moses and puts him in a cleft of a rock and covers him with his hand, and God passes by. As he passes by, God says these words about himself. He says, I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. But God calls himself. He is slow to anger. God actually gets angry. Now today, when people talk about God, they say, I don't believe in a God that's angry. I believe in, in a God of love. That's, that's what I believe in. And, and God is a God of love. Love is not God. God is love. You got to understand that. But God is a God of love. But you have to understand some things about anger. If you have a God that never gets angry, you can't have a God of love. Because if you never get angry about anything, you probably don't love anything. If you love something and you see that thing you love being threatened, well, you'll want to do something about it. You'll get angry about that. If you're indifferent, you're not in love. One writer says it like this. Anger in its uncorrupted origin is love moved to deal with the threat to someone or something you love. If something you love is really threatened, you get angry at the thing that's trying to threaten it. And this is why anger being like an explosive or wanting to disintegrate things can actually be a good thing because it could disintegrate the thing that's trying to destroy the thing that you love. And don't misunderstand me here, but anger originally, I think, until it's corrupted by sin, was a form of love. And what we must do when we get angry is ask ourselves this question in our heart. What am I trying to defend? What am I loving so much that I'm so angry about this? And if you ask and answer that question honestly, you're going to see what your heart really loves the most. And the tragicness about our culture and the society in which we live is the thing that we most normally love the most is ourselves and our pride. 
and who we are. We don't want anybody to get in front of our ego. And we become mad because we're trying to protect our pride. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24. I think the reason why the Old Testament says God is angry a lot, and some people say, yeah, God's so mad in the Old Testament, like a, like a junior high girl hopped up on soda. I can't believe that, right? Well, it's because God loves us, and God is angry at what's destroying his creation and his people, and he loves them. In the New Testament, Jesus is said to get angry. In John 2, he's angry at the money changers in the temple. In Mark 3, he's angry at the religious leaders. In John 11, he's angry at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has died. The Greek and the Hebrew words for anger are very closely related. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for anger, it, it means nose, it, like, like the flaring of the nostrils. Can't, I don't know if I can do that. Are they, that that's, that's what anger means. And so slow to anger is long nose. God is said to have a long nose. You feel like you've got a long nose? Great. You're like God. You're a wonderful view. Uh, in the New Testament, this, this verb for when Jesus gets angry in this, it has this connotation. It's very strong of billows with anger or snorts with anger. That's the idea. And why does Jesus get angry? Jesus is a man of perfect love. Why does he get angry? Because of sin. And what it's doing to his creation and his people. Now, today we have a lot of people who say, you know, don't let your rights get crossed. Don't let people ever get in front of you. You know, don't let ever someone talk about you behind your back. And they hold the wrong idea of anger up as too positive. They say, you gotta express it. You gotta get them back. You gotta let them know they crossed you. But the Bible has this real unique approach to anger. It sees the basic goodness of it and also its destructive power. Both of these things. And if it's something that originally came out of love and it's so wonderful, how can something like this turn us into hate-filled idiots so much of the time? I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about that. Proverbs 24, verse 28 and 29 says, Do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. Uh, This is basically saying, uh, if your neighbor is a turd, it doesn't give you a right to be one too. Okay, I'll, I someday will make the Aaron translation and that will be in there. Uh, somebody's really angry at somebody and verse 28 says, in spite of the fact that you may be angry, it doesn't give just cause for some of the things that your anger makes you do. Uh, the church father Augustine said we really have this disproportionate and bad view of anger because we have our disordered loves. We're loving the wrong things in the wrong way. And what I mean by that, there are a lot of things in this world that are good. Uh, your family, maybe your job, accomplishments, spouse, uh, could even be a political movement of some sort. But whenever we turn something that was good into an ultimate thing, All of a sudden, that thing gives us our meaning in life, and we're loving the wrong things incorrectly. We don't just love things that are good. We look to these things many times to give us happiness and significance and security and self-worth and wholeness. But only God can give those things. Keller writes this. He says, when we turn good things into ultimate things, when we love good things too much more than God, that's when our emotions get distorted. Like, I don't know if you've ever broken up with somebody you've dated for a while or maybe gone through a divorce or had your eyes set on a job that you thought, this is a perfect job for me. I'm going to get this job. It's going to be great. And then all of a sudden that thing falls through. You will be, rightly so, sad. But if and when that you break up or get turned down and the reaction becomes self-destructive behavior, maybe you drink too much or eat too much or some people contemplate suicide, what you've done is you turn that good thing into an ultimate thing. You've turned that person or you need for affection or that job into an absolute. And when you love someone or something in a way that you should only look to God for, that's when our emotions begin to get all out of whack. They become disproportionate. Are you following that? Okay. Okay. So this is what happens when anger gets out of control. If anger is originally a form of love, then our disordered love is going to create our disordered 
anger. We'll be angry at all of these things maybe we shouldn't be angry at and angry at the wrong times and the wrong ways. I think this can happen in three different ways. First off, uh, disordered anger is disordered in terms of its cause, like what caused us to be angry. I think it's why we're so much angry, angrier about someone who maybe snubs us or slights us than we are about an injustice to an entire people group in another part of the world. It's disordered love. I don't think there's anything wrong with being irritated if someone talks about you behind your back. But why are we a hundred or a thousand times more angry about that than some violent injustice done to some group of people in another part of the world? It is disordered love. That's exactly why. If we look for our security and our approval from people or things, when everything gets between us and that thing we think we have to have, we will have disproportionate anger. There are certain things in our lives that we hold on to too closely that we want to defend all the time and it causes disproportionate anger. There are things in this world that make us Hulk-like angry when we should only be like an Ant-Man-sized angry. It came out this week, right? Bam, just like that. I think there are things that we should be Hulk angry about in our world. I, I really do. You know, but, but selfishness and pride and our ego are disordered loves. We're hardly ever angry at the right things. The second thing is our anger is not just distorted in terms of cause, it becomes distorted in terms of proportion, meaning it's always over the top. We always want something, somebody hurt worse than we think we ever did. Like somebody pulls in front of you when you're driving into the roundabout. What do you think? They should lose their car and their license for the rest of their life and they should have to walk everywhere. How dare they? And first service, someone went, yep. <laughs> But it's over the top. It's disproportionate in how we want to bring it about. And thirdly, when these things happen, it's disordered in terms of its goal, of what we want to see happen. Loving anger should want to do like surgery on an issue, like a surgical strike on something. Like you have, have a child, and you see them being an idiot. What you want to do is destroy the idiocy, not the child. That's ordered love, right? Let's get rid of the idiocy in you. That's anger the way it should be. In disordered anger, you don't go after the problem. You start going after the person. You want that person to suffer. This is riots and politics and racism. You don't just want restitution and justice. You want vengeance. It's why people sometimes who have been to a church and they feel like they've been wronged by a church say, well, all churches are bad. It's sometimes when a woman has been abused in a relationship will walk away and say, all men are evil and bad. It's why some people who watch the news and see some corporations who dump sludge or hire child labor in other countries, they think all corporations are bad. Down with Wall Street. It's this whole idea. And there's levels to this. Like, like sometimes you get a little bit of it and you walk around a little irritated. Everything just kind of bugs you under the surface. Then there's like a second level of it where you have these letdowns and these breakups and you just can't get over them. So you just walk around we just irritated all the time. And if you never deal with that, you get to a third level where you have dissatisfaction with God. You start looking at God like he's the one who has failed. And this is why you're dissatisfied in your life. There's something wrong with him. We're irritated all the time. And we go through life just getting angrier and angrier under the surface. It is not good. It is not good. It leads to disordered anger where we're always angry at the wrong things in the wrong way. And it's not how Jesus calls us to live. Because this leads to self-pity and more self-centeredness and more anger. It's like this cycle, and it goes around and around and around. And when it's lived out in a larger framework of governments, it can lead to wars and oppression because no one wants to admit what's at the root of it all. And it is disproportionate love of ourself over who God is. We're always turning things back towards ourselves. So how do we deal with this? How do we have a culture where anger can actually return to what it was meant to be? 
I'm going to try and be very practical in this. And I don't want to sound like a self-help guru, but I might. But that's not what I'm trying to do. Okay, so the first one in this is when you're angry, number one, you have to admit it. You have to admit it. Imagine we're in a self-help group, okay? And I say, hi, my name is Aaron. I can get stupid angry. And you say... Exactly. And we could all say the exact same thing because we all get stupid angry. We do. But you really have to be in touch with your anger. And that means you got to know how angry you actually are. If you only have a negative view of anger, you will walk around trying to deny that you are ever angry. You'll even try to disguise it from yourself. And when we do that, we'll start to think that we're better than everybody else. Oh, they're mad, but, but I'm not really mad. But what we do is we hold people at arm's reach. You just stay over there. I'm not going to interact with you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to deal with you because, you know, I, I'm kind of better than you are. But all it is, that's really just anger. I don't know if you realize this, but if you're the victim of somebody else, to even admit you're angry at somebody is an act of vulnerability. What it does is it puts you in a position of weakness. If you go to somebody and say, you made me angry, even if they're completely wrong, you know what it does? It gives them the opportunity to apologize. It gives the ability to start reconciliation. And maybe you don't want to do that because it puts yourself in a very vulnerable situation. It's much easier just to criticize people and not own up to our anger. But if we don't, we will destroy the ability to reconcile. We we will feed our own bitterness and our own anger. And in the end, we're going to be controlled by it. So you got to admit it. The second thing you do is you analyze it. I know, it sounds like self-help. Get over it, okay? Proverbs 24, 29, at the end of it, it says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. The person in Proverbs is talking to themselves. That's who they're talking to there. Many times what makes us angry is not what happened to us, but what we tell ourselves about what happened to us. Oh, these are the motives behind it. This is why they said this. This is why they did that. What makes us angry sometimes is not what we lost, but what we tell ourselves that loss actually means. And so again, like I said before, we have to ask, what's this thing that is so important to me that I'm trying to defend? And if you ask that question and you're honest enough about it, you'll realize many times what you're defending is your ego and your pride and your self-esteem. You ever go out to like, I'm going to go see like Ant-Man and the Wasp. I want to go see Ant-Man and the Wasp. And it's like, but I'm going to get dinner beforehand. But you get home from work late, so you're running late, and you stop at a restaurant, and they seat you really slow. And then the waitress just takes your order so slow, and your food comes out so slow, and you're so mad at that waitress. Guys, get over it. It's not her fault you can't plan your day correctly. Let her go. You're welcome if you're a waitress, by the way, Okay. It's not your fault. It's them. They need to plan their day better, right? I mean, if, if someone is driving like an idiot, again, and gets in front of you, it's, it's not because they're just being an idiot. It's because we feel like they have offended us. I am driving this car. I am God of this world that's six feet wide by ten feet long. And how dare you get... It's, it's because we are being wrong. We have disordered love. We are defining everything based upon our ego and our pride. We order our loves in a way that put us first. I mean, again, how is your love ordered when you get angry? It's really hard to ask that, and it's complicated because it goes down into our life and our soul. Uh, the day I was writing this message, and it's okay that I share this with you. They said it was fine. But I was meeting with this couple, and this couple, we were talking about different things, and she was really angry at her husband because she felt like he hadn't done anything for a really long time, and he's really lazy, and how dare he be all lazy. And then she goes and tells me how for the last three months he's actually been changing. And then she goes, but he's not changing. And I'm like, but you just said he was changing. And she's like, don't use my words against me. And I'm like, whoa. Right, Because what she just wanted to hold on to her anger, and if she could hold on to her anger, it justified how she was treating her husband. 
and how she was treating things within her home. And I'm not just saying women do that. Okay, guys do this too all the time. What we have to understand is that until God's love for us is more important than our anger at other people, there's no way we're ever going to live in anger correctly. It's just not going to happen. Which my third thing is you have to transform your anger or let Jesus transform your anger. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If someone comes to you and at you with harsh words, how are we supposed to engage with that? We're supposed to do two things. Respond gently. Respond gently. Proverbs 25 verse 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Do you know there's lots of wisdom literature in the ancient world outside of Israel? But only the scriptures and Proverbs speak about this because it's beyond self-control. This is not just saying, have self-control, don't revenge yourself on your enemies. This says, save your enemies. Food and drink are things you can't live without. The ramification of this is you redeem your enemies. Yes, people can say hurtful things. Yes, people can, you ever meet a teenager, right? You ever been a teenager, right? They can do and say hurtful things. But there are only three things you can do when something comes at you like that. And this goes back to Proverbs 15, verse 1. The first thing you can do is just withdraw. And you can say, I'm not going to deal with this at all. I'm going to walk away. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to do anything with it. It hurts too much. Well, that's not responding. That's just running away. The second thing you can do is go in guns a-blazing. Oh, they raged at me? I'll rage at them. They call me something? I'll call them something back. And then you lose it because you both end up like idiots because you're both raging like crazy. And that's not gently. What you have to do is what we talked about. The third thing is is like uh, the surgery. It's like a surgical strike. If you stay away from someone, their idiocy can take them over. You go guns a-blazing again, you both become idiots. But a surgical strike is not how you target the person. It's how you target the problem. What is actually going on? Again, not the idiot, but the idiocy. You speak truth while many times you have to absorb their anger as it comes at you. I mean, you see this all the time in relationships with people, in in marriages, and parents and children, all these things. Because what we have to see is that the person that we are mad at was made by a God who loves us and calls us to be a people who live in his image, that he died for. We transform it. And this is what the importance is of the gospel in everything that we do. Do you realize what God has done for us? I mean, most of us in our lives have been mad at God. We don't want to say it because, you know, then we just look bad. But we we believe that. We believe that. We have a way we wanted our lives to work out. We have a way we wanted things to go. And our lives hardly ever go the way that we had planned. They always take these detours that go all over the place. And we're in denial that we're mad at God, but there's proof in that. And the proof is we don't listen to what he actually says. There's things that are clearly spoken of in the scriptures. I'm like, I don't need to listen to that. I'm going to do my own thing. And then our lives become a mess and we blame God for it. We're so weird. Why do we do this all the time? Another way we know how mad we are at God is that when we got him in our clutches, when Jesus became a man, we killed him. We killed him. We, we took a hold of him, nailed him to a cross, mocked him, beat him, reviled him. And yet it says he did not revile us. God didn't withdraw and leave us to our vices. God didn't go in guns a-blazing. He goes to the cross. And on the cross, he tells us the truth. You are sinful. And I have come to rescue and save you. He talks about our disordered rage and our disordered loves, all without paying his back. He didn't just take our undeserved anger. He took the anger that we actually deserved. And on the cross, Jesus says, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. Guys, if we can see Jesus and how he took our disordered rage at infinite cost to himself, then we can understand what a surgical strike actually looks like. 
Jesus loved the sinner while he hated the sin. And I know in our society today, people say, oh, you can't love the sinner and hate the sin. But that's exactly what God did for us. He forgave our sins so he could embrace us and bring us into his family. If we become a people who understand the gospel, we will be stunned into silence by what God has actually done, how God responds to our disordered love and our disordered rage. Then when other people come at us that wrong us, we can do the same thing. It's by understanding the gospel that our lives change, by surrendering to who he is, by finding all we are in him, and by trusting him for new and real life in ourselves. That our disordered love and our disordered anger begins to make sense and come together how it's supposed to. Martin Luther King Jr., in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement, gives this long sermon. In the middle of it, he says this, and it's beautiful, but it's long, but I'm going to read it to you. He says this, Jesus said, love your enemies that you may be children of your father who is in heaven. Of course you say, all this about loving enemies is not practical. Life is a matter of getting even, of hitting back. Maybe in some distant utopia the idea will work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for a long time now. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered into hatred and violence. We are going to follow another way. We will not abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of strength, we will continue to rid the nation of the incubus of segregation. But we will not in the process relinquish our privilege and obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we will love the segregationist. This is the only way to build the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love love, love you. Throw us in jail, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community and beat us, and we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down. One day we will win freedom, but not for ourselves. We will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And so our victory will be a double victory. The great military leaders of the past have gone and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Jesus, built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, is still growing. May we solemnly realize that we shall never be sons of our Heavenly Father until we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us as he did for us. Way better preacher than me, okay? I get it. I get it. But guys, we have to understand, how do we deal with anger? We look at Jesus absorbing our disordered love and our disordered anger and how he responds to us in gentleness and grace and that empowers us then to be able to go out and live in this world how he lived first towards us. We live in a world that is filled with hate these days. How do we hate segregation and love the segregationist? Well, we hate the sin and love the sinner, just like Jesus did for us. And we are free to do it because he first did it for us. We get to be agents of redemptive gentleness in this world and be able to begin to deal with anger rightly because he is the one who first did it for us. You want to bring a countercultural ideal in understanding what anger is and how it can be used rightly? You look at how God dealt with and saved and rescued us. And this week, what I would encourage you to do When something irritates you, when you start to get angry, take a step back and think, what is the thing that I'm trying to defend here? Why am I so angry? And then look at that and think and see if it's really just yourself and your ego and your pride. Because many times that's what it is. Because we must be a people who understand that anger can be a very good thing. But only when it's proportionally in the right way with an ordered love. When we talk about communion every week, do you understand this is a place that actually resulted out of God's anger at sin and what sin did to his people? 
And that resulted in him coming in a way that rescued and saved us out of love and grace and hope. Jesus goes to the cross. He absorbs all of the anger that was directed at God. And he took upon himself all of the anger of God towards our sin upon himself. And he rescues and he saves us and offers us grace. This is why you take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his body and his blood. He was broken and his blood was shed for us to take all of the wrath against sin upon himself. And we now get to experience the grace and the love of God and we get to live and have lives of ordered loves again where they're supposed to be. And that first starts in a place where we surrender all that we are to the person of Jesus. The band's going to come up. As they do, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you in your life right now are in a place where you have a disordered anger, where you're angry all the time, and this might go to your place where you have a disordered love and you want someone to talk with you and pray with you about that. They would love to do that. They'd love to begin to start talking and walking through all of those hard issues of what we're trying to defend and what we're holding up bigger and greater than who Jesus is in our lives. And that we would surrender everything we are to him so everything becomes ordered in a way that Jesus is actually first. Because only then and only in that will we begin to live out in the counterculture way that brings any type of semblance to wisdom to the idea of anger. We must be a people who trust and love him and all that we do first because he is good. Now there's, there are offering boxes next to every single door. We give because God gives so much to us, giving us part of our worship. There's food outside. Grab some sermon notes. Maybe meet with some people this week and start to talk through some of those questions in those sermon notes. You know, think of the last time you were just angry, where afterwards you felt like a fool, and then ask yourself, what were you trying to defend when you were that angry? What brought you to that place? I know, quite honestly, even, even this week, even yesterday, I was really angry about something, but it's only because it affected me in a way I didn't want it to affect me. And it, and it becomes very disordered, because really my anger most of the time is just about me. And I think there are things in this world that we could and should be angry about, but we are hardly ever angry about the right things. We're only angry when things affect us. Guys, God calls us to be a people who bring about a counterculture of wisdom and hope. And that starts with him being first in our lives and everything that we do because he is good. So let's be a people who figure out where our ordered loves actually are, where our disordered anger and disordered rage lies, and begin to lay everything at his feet and live out in the hope that he brings and gives to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and that you would expose our hearts and that we would begin to see our disordered loves. That we would begin to see all the things that we have placed above you and all the ways that we get so angry at things we should not even get angry about. Or if we do, it should be an ant-man size of anger. God, teach us to have our loves ordered in a way that you are always first. That we trust you enough to lay all of ourselves at your feet to surrender everything to you. And that we would then understand how you have come to rescue us. How in coming and dying and rising from the grave, you took all the wrath that was poured out against sin upon yourself. Really, the, the only appropriate response to all of our sin, and you took it upon yourself. And then you give us grace and hope and new life again. 
have us surrender all that we are to you. That we'd come out of all the places that we're trying to hide ourselves in. And we live in the glory and the life that you provide. That we'd be a people who honor you with all that we are. And that we could bring about a counterculture of grace that can even deal with anger in a way that brings glory to you and joy to your people and rights injustices and wrongs in this world in a way that always comes back and has you first as our great love because you are good. We ask all these things in your son's gracious name. Amen.